Good morning. If you, uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. We're just going to, we're going to be in one verse this morning, Romans 12, 1. And so uh, we're going to camp out there. It's probably a verse that you've heard before. But what it does is it serves as the transition from what has been uh, the theological portion of Romans into the more practical sort of day-to-day lived out portion of Romans. We could make uh, kind of further subdivisions, but we're going to lump all of Romans 12 to 16 under one section. It's the last section of the book. And so here's what we're going to see from this point forward, that a life that is centered on the gospel is a life that is shaped by the gospel. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving God's grace, the forgiveness of your sin, has heart-transforming, life-altering what should be society-impacting implications and applications. We're, they're nothing more to the gospel than to receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ than Romans would end at 1136. That would be the end of the letter. Paul would have nothing left to say. We wouldn't have portions of epistles like Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 or like, Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 through 16. We would have no need for Romans 12 through 16. But instead, like Jared Wilson, a pastor, a writer says, he says, the gospel does not exist in a theological vacuum. The gospel isn't just something that has doctrinal importance. It's something that has practical, everyday implications and applications. And that's where we're gonna turn ourselves to from this point forward. But before we jump into that, Uh, Let me say what might be the most important thing I say this morning, and that's that these applications, these implications of the gospel, the commands of the New Testament, the commands of the Old Testament, obedience to those is not the means by which a person is saved. We're going to spend the next few months talking about what a gospel-centered life actually looks like with flesh on in the real world. But the beginning point of a gospel-centered life is faith in the work of Jesus Christ. The fruit of a believer's life is not what makes someone a believer. The fruit of a believer's life is not necessary to complete the work of salvation that Christ won for us on the cross. The fruit of a believer's life is not necessary to somehow maintain or sustain the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Should I say that more ways? You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But just as certainly as that salvation or justification comes on the heels of your faith, a gospel-centered life, a life that's shaped by the gospel, absolutely, certainly comes on the heels of saving faith. The two cannot be separated. The fruit, the works don't save you, but they are absolutely the logical evidence of a life that has been transformed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. The implications of the gospel matter, but they're not the thing that saves you. I read a quote this week while preparing for this message from an author named Ray Ortland. He says this, the work of the gospel in the life of a believer is like a master symphony. The New Testament teaches us how to play it. That's what Romans 12 through 16 is going to do for us. And where we're going to start this morning is just simply with Romans 12, 1. Next week, we're, we're just going to look at Romans 12, 2, because I think Romans 12, 1 and Romans 12, 2 lay out what are the two foundational pieces 
of what a life in response to the gospel looks like. And so we don't want to rush past them. We're just going to camp out. We're going to look at Romans 12:1 here ad nauseum. We're going to look at all the words. What do those words mean? What is the imagery that Paul's associating with them? And then as we go, what I want us to do is then just talk very practically. How do I apply that particular part? What do I have to do in order to live this kind of life that Paul's going to lay out? So let's, let's read Romans 12:1 together, and then we'll start working our way through it. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true worship. The main point this morning is going to be this, that a gospel-centered life is a life of continual, total, rational sacrifice. Let's just work our way through this. The first word of Romans 12, therefore, that's probably the largest therefore in all of Scripture. Paul has everything that he's written up to this point in view. Before he says what you should do, Paul says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, remembering all of Romans 1 through 11. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is, the, it is the salvation for everyone who believes. And then he begins to step his way through that. And then the rest of chapter 1 and in chapters 2, in the first half of chapter 3, he makes it very clear that every human being has a desperate need for the gospel. Romans 2, God shows no favoritism. Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. But there's been a provision that's been made. Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, Paul goes all the way back to Abraham and says, faith has always been the means by which Humanity has been declared righteous in the sight of the Lord. It was that way with Abraham. It's that way now for Christians and their faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you receive God's grace, you're now in Christ. Your life is hidden in him. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Jesus. Romans chapter 6. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You've got this new life in Christ. Romans 7 and 8. The Holy Spirit is active and present inside the life of every single believer, applying to them the blessings of their salvation, sanctifying them, crying out your adoption, testifying as to who you are providing, kind of screaming out inside of you that there's no condemnation, no separation. The Holy Spirit is present in that. Romans 9, God is sovereign over all things. Romans 10, humanity is responsible both for the receiving of God's grace and for the proclaiming of God's grace. He's sovereign. We're responsible. Romans chapter 11, God will prove himself to be faithful, not just to his chosen people, the Israelites, but to all the nations of the earth in the way that he works out salvation history. And then Paul just like drops onto his knees in worship at the end of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the glory of God, of his knowledge of his wisdom, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then Paul arrives at the start of the next sentence and he says, therefore, in light of all of that, brothers and sisters, every single person who's a Christian, this verse is not just for like 
people who go into full-time ministry. It's not just for people who give their lives as missionaries. It's not just for the apostles or the disciples. It's not just for super Christians, people that you think are really living the Christian life. This is for every single person who's been justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, I urge you. Paul's passionate worship at the end of 11 is turned into this pleading. I am pleading with you in view of God's mercy to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let's stop there. What is kind of step one here in living this life of continual, total, rational sacrifice? What is step implication one, part one here? And we we shouldn't pass over it. And that's that we need to routinely remind ourselves of the gospel. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, we need to view it. We need to view it regularly, routinely, daily, because we're forgetful. And as soon as you start to forget the gospel, you stop rehearsing the gospel to yourself, you'll end up living like you've forgotten the gospel. That's just how it works. We are fickle, frail human beings. We are distracted by every whim of the world around us. And we need to routinely recenter ourselves on the gospel. I don't know if you do, uh, you know, your time in scripture, your time in prayer, first thing in the morning, you might do that another time. We don't need to get legalistic about when it is that you spend time with the Lord. I think it's important to start your day by reminding yourself of the gospel, even if that's not when you jump into scripture. I've been doing this a particular way in my own life. And earlier in Romans, I shared a different way that I rehearsed the gospel, but my heart has started to cling to some different stuff. And so literally recently, every single morning, I, I'm standing in like our master bathroom there at our house, looking into the mirror, and I verbally tell myself four things. First, Tim, your successes do not add to your worth in the Lord's eyes. Second, Tim, your failures do not subtract from your worth in the Lord's eyes. Third, Tim, you are infinitely more valuable than the sum of all of your efforts. And then fourth, Tim, God loved you fully before you did a single thing. I have to give myself those reminders. I need to rehearse the gospel in that sort of way because let me tell you what happens when I don't. I start to live as though if I'm successful in a day, just however I would define success that day, then that must mean that God loves me more. I must be more worthy of God's attention, more worthy of God's love, more worthy of his affection. Or on the flip side, if by whatever means or definition I would say is a failure, whether that's at work, in my marriage, if I have some sort of failure in a sin or like a moral sense, then I can get tempted to think that I've now subtracted from my inherent worth before the Lord. That's false. Living in that sort of way would breed a very legalistic sort of lifestyle where I think that there's some sort of like one for one addition and subtraction that happens in the eyes of the Lord, which would drive me to do all sorts of weird stuff. I need to rehearse the gospel. I need to start the day with it because if I don't start the day with it, then I'm gonna get to work or I'm gonna get to whatever the first thing is on my schedule or on my calendar and I'm going to start living as though 
I and my doing and my being is going to somehow define God's love for me. We need to routinely remind ourselves of the gospel. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you. So what do you do? Present. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's this Old Testament sacrificial imagery that runs its way through Romans 12.1. Paul's writing to a group of Jew, Jewish and Gentile, like a mixed church there in Rome. And a lot of them would have had an understanding of just how sacrifice works. That someone would have brought an animal or, or some sort of um, offering that they're going to present. And they would have brought it into the temple. And there at the temple, there would be this exchange that took place. That I would come in with my sheep or my goat or my bird or whatever the case might be. And I would walk into the temple and the priest would meet me there and we would do this sort of exchange. I've got my hands on the offering, on the animal. The priest puts his hands down there on the animal. I take mine off. And now that sacrifice is in the hands of the priest and is going to be dedicated to the glory of the Lord. And he will take that up to the altar and the place mattered. You didn't just get to present your sacrifice wherever you wanted to. You took it to a specific place. It went to the temple. And there on that altar, it was offered to the Lord. Paul says that you present yourself, your body as a living sacrifice. What does that, what do we actually do with that? If we're routinely reminding ourselves of the gospel, what's the next thing that we need to do? I think the next step for all of us is that we need to identify what altar we're regularly sacrificing ourselves on. Because the truth is, we're all sacrificing to something. You're giving yourself to something every single day. And it takes a little bit of work to actually figure out what that thing is. What are your priorities? What thing gets like top billing in your thought life, in your time? in your calendar. What is that item? Is it the things of the Lord? Or is it your career? Is it a relationship or just kind of relationships in general? Is it a hobby? Is it the idea of just like free time? Like you're just living every single day to get to Friday at like 5 p.m. or to get to the next vacation or to make it to retirement. What's the dominant thing that controls your thought life? What is it that propels you out of bed every single morning? Parents, is it your kids? Parents, you make wonderful sacrifices every single day for your children. That's a good thing. It's it's the right thing. It's what being a parent is. But we should never confuse the sacrifices we make on behalf of our children for the ultimate sacrifice of our lives. The thing that's most important in your life is presenting yourself not on the altar of your children, but on the altar of the Lord. And when you get those two things backwards, you can actually end up doing damage to your children. If you make your children the primary altar that you're offering up your life upon, then you've thrown everything out of balance. The primary place you offer yourself is on the altar of the Lord. That's where you present yourself. 
And as you're working through kind of identifying your altar, the next step then would be to get yourself off of the wrong one, which is hard. If you've been living so that your career is just the peak of what you, it's what you think about. You work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You're just trying to climb the ladder, get to the next spot, make it up you know, the rung of whatever business that you work in, and then you identify that that's your altar, it is going to be hard to get yourself off of that, especially if you've locked yourself into a routine way of living like that. Look at your calendar. Consider your thought life. Analyze your priorities. Identify your altar. And then what do you present? Will you present your body as a living sacrifice? We'll talk about bodies more here in just a minute. But you, you're presenting a living sacrifice. The word living is necessary there because in any other case, when a sacrifice is offered, the thing is killed. In the Old Testament, when you brought your animal in there and you laid it up on the altar, the blood of that animal was poured out, dead, one-time offering, no more. The next time you needed to go make a sacrifice, it required a new animal. Each and every sacrifice was a one-time act. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, one-time act. He doesn't have to go back to the cross over and over and over again in order to continue making us holy in order to continue granting salvation to people. It was a one-time act. By contrast, our presenting of ourselves to the Lord is as a living sacrifice. It is continual. You present yourself continually. We do that in view of God's mercy and sacrificing his son. Our blood is not necessary because Jesus's blood has paid for our justification. And since our blood doesn't need to be poured out to pay the price for our sin, we present our bodies as a worshipful response to the mercy of God as a living sacrifice. It is continual. Maybe one of the great kind of harms or confusions or misconceptions within American Christianity is that when you prayed the prayer, you received God's grace by faith that in that moment we think I offered myself to the Lord and that is sufficient for the rest of my life. I need to do no more offering. That's not the way that works. The gospel takes hold of you, but it is not done with you at your moment of faith and your moment of justification. It's just beginning. And the beginning of that is when you see God's mercy for what it is. You see your sinfulness and the work of Christ to pay your debt and you receive God's grace by faith and now you embark upon the difficult task of continually presenting yourself before the Lord, offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Routinely remind yourself of the gospel, identify your altars and then get yourself off of the wrong one and then embrace the pain of sacrifice. In a sacrifice, something dies. That's what a sacrifice is. But the death of that thing brings about something greater. In the case of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross, but it brought about our salvation. 
Now in this case where we're talking about our lives, we offer a living sacrifice, which means you won't be the thing that dies, but something inside of you might need to. Some dream that you've had, some ambition that you've held for a long time, some worldly desire that you have, those things might not align with God's word or with God's will or with God's plan for your life. And so that dream or that desire or that ambition has to die and it will hurt. To borrow from Jesus' own words, he says that following him means that we take up our cross daily. Look, crosses aren't comfortable things. There's pain involved. It hurts. The death of that dream, the death of that ambition, the death of that desire, that thing that didn't align with God's will, but it was such a part of who you were before you became a Christian or it was such a part of who you were before the Holy Spirit illuminated to you that that thing was sinful or it was coming from a bad place or a bad motivation or you were clinging to it with your identity and it has to die, that's going to be painful. But we need to embrace that pain because the death of that thing and the pain that it brings about brings to life something greater inside of us. It brings to life God's glory in and through our living sacrifice. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The gospel-centered life is a life of continual, total sacrifice. You might have a translation here of the Bible in front of you and Romans 12, 1, instead of the word bodies, it uses the word lives, offer your lives, present your lives. I think bodies is actually the better word there and let me explain why that is. Romans 6 made a similar plea to Romans 12, 1. In Romans 6, we were told, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it, that being your body, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. You offer your body. Why? Because your body, flesh and bone, is the place where sin is going to wage its war. That is the place where the battle for righteousness tangibly takes place in your body. And so Paul is urging, he's pleading with us, both in Romans 6 and here in Romans 12, 1, to take that body, hoist it up there on the altar of the Lord, and present it to him in full. You write the Lord a blank check. You lift your body up there onto the altar and you say, here it is, Lord, because not only is your body the place where sin is going to wage its war, your body is also the place where the Holy Spirit has come to dwell. And the Holy Spirit is now inside of your body, traveling, right, for the rest of your life from now until your glorification and ought to be the place the vehicle by which the fruit of your justification is lived out for the world to see. That should take place in your body. And so you write this blank check in view of the work of the Son at the altar of the Father. You say, here's my entire body, Holy Spirit. Do with it what you will. 
Sanctify it into the image of Jesus. You can have every last piece of it. Let me tell you how a sacrifice didn't work in the Old Testament. Someone didn't roll into the temple with their sheep, lift it up there onto the altar, and right as the sheep is getting ready to be sacrificed, say to the priest, now we were hoping for lamb chops for dinner. So after you've slaughtered this thing, before you burn it, if you could, if we could just, if I could get that meat, you can have all of the rest of it. But we want this particular part. We want to keep that for ourselves. No, that would be to offer the Lord what's convenient, not to offer a total sacrifice. If we're being honest, I'll be honest. Oftentimes what we do is we present to the Lord what's convenient for ourselves. Here are all the things I want. God, you can have what's left over. Here's all the time I think I need to do all the stuff that I want to do to use my life the way that I want to do it, to have all the fun that I'm attempting to have, to do all the things that I think will make my wife or will make myself or make my children ultimately happy and like me the most. And then whatever's left over, God, you can have. And if it happens to work out to be like an hour and 10 minutes on a Sunday morning when there's not a noon Chiefs game, then you can have that portion of my time. Last week, we didn't sing, you are worthy of some of it that's left over. We sang, you are worthy of it all, all of it. I'm lifting my body up onto the altar and presenting it as a living sacrifice, every last piece of it. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And we glorify him in a way that's holy and pleasing to God. Scripture is our guide for what holy and pleasing looks like. God makes the commands If we're offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, we live in response and in obedience to those commands. You've been made holy and acceptable in an eternal sense thanks to the work of Christ. Now, as we pursue holiness, we present ourselves as holy and acceptable by offering our body to the God-glorifying work of the Holy Spirit that we might be sanctified and continually be holy and acceptable to Him. So what do we do with this? What does it practically look like here to present our bodies? Well, I think the key is that you offer your whole body. Let's go back to considering the sheep that we wanted lamb chops out of. You lift that sheep there in the Old Testament at the temple up onto the altar. You know what that sheep would rather be doing in that moment? Snacking on grass walking around, hopping around out in a field like buying with its buddies or whatever it is that sheep do in their free time. But that's not what's happening. Why? Because the sheep is a sacrifice. The lamb is being offered. We don't lift ourselves up onto the altar and then say to God, 
here's what I would rather be doing. If you could fit your work inside the parameters that I'm giving you, then I'll be content with it. No, we pick our whole body up. We lay it there on the altar. Let me be really, really practical here. A rampant problem in America, more than America, in like modern Western society is pornography. It's as rampant in the church as it is outside the church. So if we're going to offer the entirety of our body up there to the Lord to be holy and pleasing, holy and acceptable to him, it means that your eyes have to make it up onto the altar too. It means that you've got to be willing to say, despite how much your flesh might enjoy the looking at pornography, that God, here are my eyes up there on the altar as a sacrifice to you, would you make them holy and pleasing and acceptable? It might mean that you just really enjoy gossip. You know that it's not the best thing, but like you enjoy hearing the stuff about other people or you enjoy spreading what it is that you know about other people. And you need to get your tongue and your ears up there onto the altar with the rest of your body that it might be sacrificed to him. Holy and pleasing. And there's pain involved because it might mean that you've got to start seeing yourself out of conversations with people that you normally would have taken part of. And it's going to be awkward when you walk out of the room. You might need to get your hands up there on the altar. That up to this point, you just kind of view your work, your job as like punching the clock and making a living. And it has nothing to do with glorifying the Lord. And you need to get that up there on the altar because you don't have to do this job in order to do God-glorifying work with your 40, 45, 50 hours a week at the office. You put your profession up there on the altar. You might need to get your feet up onto the altar, meaning that you need to take your schedule and the things that you're doing and the places that you're going and get those up there on the altar because up to this point, you've just been determining what it is that you do based on the things that you want to do and you've never considered what it is that the Lord might want you to do with your time. You get all of your body up there on the altar to God and you present it to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. All of you, every part, every moment, every word, every glance, every action, not just to the killing of sinful action within you, but also to the cultivating of glorifying action in and through you. That you would use your hands to serve. That you would use your mouth to speak words of encouragement and to share the gospel. That you would use your life to proclaim the greatness of God and His mercy. All of you. And then Paul finishes by saying, this is your true Worship. Remember the verbal worship that Paul broke out into here in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Remember that last week at the end of our service, we engaged in that kind of worship that in view of God's mercy and the depth of his riches and wisdom and knowledge, we praised the Lord. Paul says that that's not the complete picture of what worship is. Does worship include our singing? Yes. Does worship include our gathering together on Sunday mornings? Yes. Does worship include our quiet times or our time in Scripture, our time praying? Yes. But Paul says that your true worship is with this presenting of your body as a living sacrifice, this continual, total, 
And then the last word is rational sacrifice. In place of where the CSB says true, your translation of the Bible might say that this is your spiritual act of worship or this is your reasonable act of worship. The word there that's being translated spiritual or reasonable or true is the word logikos. It's where we get the word logical from. Paul's thrust is that offering the fullness of your body as a living sacrifice in this sort of way is the only logical, rational response to God's mercy in Jesus Christ. That is what worship is. That is true worship. It is a continual, total, rational sacrifice, which means that anything less than a completely abandoned, continual, total, rational presenting of your body on the altar of the Lord falls short of what God wants from the lives of his people. What do we do with this? Well, we don't need to overcomplicate it. You worship with all that you are all the time. That doesn't mean that you spend all day singing amazing grace, though you're certainly welcome to do that if that's what you want to do. It means that you view every moment of your life as an offering, as a sacrifice to the Lord. It means that work is more than punching the clock. Like Colossians says, you work at that thing as if working for the Lord and not for men. And that requires a sacrifice because we can all level with each other here. It's easier sometimes to go to work and just kind of slough off, to phone it in for a day. Not a big deal. The company's gonna continue. Paul would say, the New Testament would say, that we don't do that. That in response to the gospel, we do hard, God-glorifying work at our jobs. Parents, worshiping with all that you are all the time means that parenting is more than just keeping the kids from touching the hot stove or putting the staple into the socket and just helping them make it to 18 years old so that you can ship them on out of the house, even though some days those seem like admirable goals. It means that your parenting is a sacrifice. That like Deuteronomy says, you teach your kids about the things of God while you're at home, while you're on the road, wherever you may be. That that is a sacrifice. That's what it looks like to put your body up there on the altar. That you were given those children as a blessing and as a responsibility. And it is about offering that responsibility up to the Lord and saying, God, I'm giving you this task. Investing in relationships, tending to your marriage, managing your finances, how you organize your schedule, what you do with your free time, all of it gets presented to the Lord, used according to his word, given to him for his glory and his will. Romans 12.1 says that is true worship. That in response to the limitless depths of God's love, mercy, kindness, wisdom, and knowledge, you write him a completely blank check with your lives. No reservations, nothing held back. A gospel-centered life is a life of continual, total, rational sacrifice. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true worship. I want to end this morning with some encouragements. I want to start with young people. If you're in here this morning and you're in high school or middle school or college, my encouragement is this. Don't wait. 
It's so easy to think when we're young that we'll get around to presenting ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord when we're older. I'll do it when I'm out of college. I'll do it when I'm married. I'll do it when I get a job. I'll do it when I have kids. It doesn't get easier in those seasons of life to present yourself as a sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, I would go so far as to say it gets harder. You get more entrenched into your patterns and into your habits and into the way that you live that it gets that much harder to get yourself off of a bad altar and onto the Lord's altar. Kids, don't wait. You can do this kind of self-sacrificing true worship now in middle school. You can do it in high school. You can do it in elementary school. You can do it in college. Don't wait. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Parents, this is the bulk of our congregation. Parents with kids still in the house. Don't think that for 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years that the object is just to survive. That God gave you those children and now you've just got to survive until they're gone and then you'll start presenting your life as a sacrifice. We, were, we spent some time together as a staff talking about uh, this passage and this sermon and one of our our pastors said it so well. They said, parents, instead of chasing your kids to their things, invite your kids with you as you chase kingdom things. Don't just survive. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And then last, empty nesters, retired individuals, seasoned people, don't coast. Don't coast. Don't think that because you retired or you got the kids out of the house or whatever the case might be that now you're just like on, you know, autopilot into eternity. You have so much left, so much left to offer the church, so much left to offer those who are younger in the faith than you, so much left to offer parents who are trying to do more than just survive with their children. You have so much left to do for the gospel. Don't coast. Don't coast. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Get all of your body up there on the altar. It might be a little harder to get on the altar than it used to be, like 20 years ago. But get yourself up there. Don't coast on into eternity. God can do so much through you. If you retire at 65 or whatever the case might be, you might have 20, 25, 30, 35 years left of living. Are you just going to ride off into the sunset for 30 years? God can do so much in that time. Don't coast. Kids, don't wait. Parents, don't just survive. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true worship. A gospel-centered life is a life of continual, total, rational sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Lord, I pray that we would never stop reminding ourselves of your mercy. God, I pray that we would never stop waking up in the mornings and reminding ourselves of your kindness and your love to us and the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Lord, and I pray we would never grow cold and calloused to it. 
Lord, but that those reminders of the gospel would create within us a posture of worship and that that worship would be more than singing or more than church attendance, that that worship would be a life of continual, total, rational sacrifice. God, help us to identify the altars that we're getting ourselves up onto, God, to see them as false and lesser and then to get ourselves off. Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace the pain of sacrifice, knowing that there is something so much greater than our ambitions or our dreams or the things that we've desired for so long, Lord. God, if those are outside of your will, you want something so much greater for us. So God, would we offer our bodies a total sacrifice to you? Will we do that continually every single day, present the fullness of who we are, on your altar as a living sacrifice, God, that you might be glorified in and through us, God, because that is the only logical response to the gospel. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would do that sort of work inside each and every one of us, God, inside of me. Living sacrifices set aside for your glory and for your good, God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.